generally speaking, people are a bit hazy about what it means to be free. Typically, when people think about freedom, they tend to think of a life free from limitations or prohibitions. Freedom means doing whatever you want. There's no one to stop you from doing as you please. It's a free country after all, right? We remember using that as kids, that that phrase as a kid, that's a free country, I can do whatever I want. However, major problems come from viewing freedom in this way. For example, suppose you are hosting a close friend who visits often. The friend asks a question, he says, may I use your bathroom? Well, being a close friend, you might respond, well, do what you want, it's a free country. Now imagine your friend who in total shock at the uninhibited permission he has just received rises from the couch, opens your fridge, and begins drinking your milk straight out of the carton. He walks over to the china cabinet and begins shattering dishes that have been in your family for generations, laughing hysterically as he does so. You watch in complete shock as he then goes to your room and begins rifling through your sock drawer. Finding an envelope of cash, he greedily stuffs it into his pocket. Just as he's about to throw your favorite reading chair out onto the lawn, you finally subdue your amazement and stammer out, what on earth are you doing? Your friend puts down the chair and turns toward you with the most bewildered look. He answers, didn't you say it was a free country that I could do what I want? Now, Obviously, when you told your friend that he could do as he wished and that it was a free country, you did not really mean that he could do whatever he wished or that his freedom entailed free reign over your sock drawer and your private stash of cash. Instead, you meant that he had the very limited freedom to use your bathroom. In this case, freedom doesn't mean freedom to do anything, but freedom to do a specific thing. Now, that might seem like a goofy illustration, right? Like, that's so bizarre. We None of us have had experience like that where a friend misreads what we're trying to say when we say that they're free to do what they want. But the sad fact is, is that many have an unbiblical notion that Christian freedom means that we now have uninhibited freedom to do as we wish, complete autonomy free from consequence. Since God has forgiven us and set us free from the wrath of sin, then we can do as we please without fear of judgment. I mean, we quote things like, the one whom the Lord sets free is free indeed. So don't tell me that I have to be careful in how I talk to people, or take care in what I watch online, or repent of my tendency to arrogantly manipulate people. As we will see in Romans 6, freedom from the law and from sin does not mean that you are now free to do as you wish. That is not Christian freedom. Christian freedom is not autonomy. Just want to be clear about that. Instead, Christian freedom brings you out of your autonomy so that you may now freely serve the Lord. It actually saves you from yourself, from being your own master, so that you could have a better master. So just want to set the cards out clearly for you to see that This is what freedom means according to Scripture. And so why are we spending time in Romans 6? Well, we are spending time in Romans 6, particularly this section, because we all need a better vision of what Christian freedom actually is.
so that we can properly submit our lives to the Lord as he intended. Okay? So, hopefully you're with me so far. As Paul has shown, you and I once stood condemned and are now justified in Jesus by grace through faith. That's good news, right? We are free. Free from wrath, free from condemnation, free from shame, free from this uh, alienation from God that our sin brings. Now what? What do we do now that we are in this newfound freedom? How do we live in light of this newfound freedom? Paul asks this very question in Romans chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. According to Paul, freedom from sin does not mean that we are now free to sin. Sure, because of your faith in Christ, God no longer counts your unrighteousness, but credits you as righteous, as if Jesus' obedience is your obedience. He counts it, he credits it in that way. However, does that, that does not give you a license to do as you please without fear of penalty. Imagine how someone might drive if they knew that they could never get pulled over or get a ticket. Think of what a person could do with company funds once they found out that they would never get fired or arrested for embezzlement. In the 1500s, Pope Leo X affirmed a cell of what was called the indulgentia plenaria, or what you would call the full indulgence. Such indulgences could be bought once a day. Okay, So there was this slip of paper... Indulgence on the top, you buy it once a day. You had to be Catholic to do it. You had to submit to the Pope's authority to do it. You had to be truly sorry for what you did the day before to do it. But you could buy this indulgence once a day. And it would cover most sins, except for the really bad ones, right? Now, imagine, what would you do with an indulgence like that? I mean, how great would that be? Adultery? To sleep with whoever you want to sleep with and then to come back the next day and buy an indulgence. It covers it. Theft? Burning your neighbor's lawn? Whatever. Murdering your neighbor's cat? You can do it all. The indulgence will cover it. Now, it's, it's this free license. Now, you might think that's laughable and you would never, ever buy such a ludicrous idea. That you could buy yourself an indulgence. However, truth be told, I think that we're like Pope Leo X and we give ourselves indulgences all the time. So we may not be Catholic in name. You might not have ever given a piece of paper, uh, given money over to the Catholic Church to get an indulgence. But the, the sad fact is, is that most Christians live as if they do have indulgences with Christ. I mean, just think of the way that we do this in the moment of sinning. As we are feeling the pressure of conviction, we know that what we're about to do is wrong, but we have this strong desire to do it, and we're trying to fight, and yet we give ourselves an encouragement, an excuse. The merits of grace are so great that it doesn't matter what I do. We think this even preemptively, right? We think this before we've even actually committed to sin. To encourage ourselves that the thing that we're about to do, the link that we're about to click, the images we're about to see, the thing that we're about to say, the wounds that we're about to give, the viewpoints we're about to take are all okay because once it's done, 
There's forgiveness and grace. God's a gracious God after all, right? Can't be condemned for what I'm about to do. So I don't want to be a legalist anyway, right? So if I, if I don't have this kind of view of sin that it's, it's, it's covered, then I'm, I'm a legalist, right? It's with this same mindset that a person's able to justify and maintain their sinful habits, their addictions, their lusts, their greed, their prideful power struggles, their personal idols, their temper tantrums, their violent outbursts, and so on. Grace covers it. Grace covers it. It's okay. The sad truth about this mainstream view of freedom is that it celebrates the gift more than it, in, more than it enjoys the giver. In other words, such people are obsessed with their freedom, but they're not transfixed on the one who made them free in the first place. Whenever you find Christians that justify their actions and themselves and whatever they want to do, whatever they want to say, however they want to say it, by saying things like, it's okay, God has, God is gracious. What they've done, what they've done is they've made grace into the idol. Grace into the God, rather than the grace giver being God. It idolizes the liberty, but it rejects the liberator. It worships the forgiveness, but forgets about the forgiver. How many times do we do that? Where our Christian freedom actually becomes a bane of our existence and our sinfulness, where it becomes the license so that we can now do as we please. Because we have focused on, look at all that I can now do without consequence. But our eyes have yet to see the point of that grace is to turn our eyes away from ourselves and what we can do at all to the one who has done all that's enough to save us and that has turned us back to himself. You see, friends, the sad thing about freedom is not only do we not understand freedom, we tend to misuse our freedom and miss the point of our freedom altogether. Christian freedom and American freedom are not the same thing. But we tend to see them in exact parallel. I represent myself. I govern my own destiny. I don't have tyrants who tell me what to do. I am a self-governed individual. That freedom does not exist in the Christian life when it comes to God. It might apply to other people, but it doesn't apply to God. That is not what freedom is. Freedom orients our heart to the king. Freedom in Christ actually submits us to a monarchy. Do you realize that? Christian freedom is not a democracy. It's not tyranny either. It's a king that we submit to. We're delivered from one thing and put underneath a king's authority. That's the biblical view of what God has done in Christ. Now, there's all kinds of problems with thinking about grace and forgiveness and, and, and ways that we can go off the road when we think about these things. So Paul is following up with this amazing message that we have been given the grace of God. In line with what he began to do at the beginning of Romans 6, Paul wants his readers to understand that God's abundant grace should not lead to excessive sin. In Romans 6.1, we met a man 
who believe that he needed to commit more sin so that he could receive more of God's grace. Shouldn't I just keep sinning so that I can keep receiving God's grace? Now in Romans 6.15, we meet another man who believes that God's grace has now freed him to do the sins that he wants to do. Paul's addressing both of them, and he uses the same, meganeto, may it never be. Now that's, that's his, that's his, it's basically Greek for saying, heck no. That's not, right? He's, like, he's basically saying, absolutely not. Like, like, like that's dumb for even thinking that that's the way that grace works, that grace allows you to now do whatever you want, or that you have to keep sinning to have more grace. The problem is, is that the person who thinks that sinning will gain him or her more of God's grace, and the person who thinks that God's grace gives a free license to sin, commit the same fallacy. Both people have a faulty idea of sin and a diminished view of grace. Both people have a faulty view of sin and a diminished view of grace. Neither gets at the heart of how depraved sin actually is or how sweet grace is. That's the problem. And much more tragic, and and God forbid this would ever happen with us, right? Where we begin to treat God's grace as nothing more than a means to an end. It's just it's just what God has given us to give us what we we wanted. Or or it's just God doing things for us to get us out of hell. Instead, God's grace is much more than that. It's done much more than that. God's grace hasn't just delivered you from God's from his own judgment. God's grace hasn't just delivered you from hell. God's grace hasn't just delivered you from feeling bad about your sin now. God's grace works to do so much more. You see, we tend to think of God's grace as only liberating. In that it it frees us from God's wrath and judgment. And that's true, it does. But it's also transformative. It changes us. So that we're not just free from God's wrath and sin, but we no longer live in captivity to our old master. We're transformed. It changes us at our, at the deepest level of what we love and our affections and what we're drawn to. It turns every facet of our being to a Godward orientation rather than a selfish orientation or others oriented orientation. It is a Godward orientation. And so here's the thing, as Paul will show, just simply claiming to be a Christian, simply claiming to have God's grace is not sufficient. It is not enough to show that you truly have received God's grace. Anyone can claim hope in God's grace. Anyone can say, I believe in Jesus. Anyone can claim all the things that Christianity says you must claim. True saving grace that frees a person from God's wrath and the power of sin transforms the one who receives it. It changes them. So let's get into it. Paul asks a very simple question in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, as modern-day readers, the idea of slavery is especially repugnant to us, as it should be, based on our historical experience of it. We don't like the word slave. We don't like the idea of slavery. 
And that's right. We, we shouldn't like the idea of slavery or the word slave or anything like that. So in this regard, it helps to actually kind of build up and understand what Paul's intentional metaphor is doing here. He's saying he's doing just that. He's using a metaphor. He even says later in verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. In other words, he knows these spiritual concepts are difficult with that for us to keep up with. So he's going to use something that we understand. He's going to use something that we get and help us understand how it works in, in the spiritual life. To be a doulos in the New Testament simply means that you work for someone else. In other words, you have a master, you have a boss, a supervisor, or an overseer who governs and guides what you do. Anybody got a boss? Okay, I've got 250 of them, so here you go. So we all know what it's like to have bosses, right? He's going to speak to our fundamental experience here. Now the phrase, present yourselves, in that verse, means to place yourself at the disposal of someone or something else. So according to Paul's metaphor, not only do you work for someone else, but all that you do, all that you are, is at their disposal. Now that's not foreign to us in our own day, as we are laborers and workers on our own, unless you're self-employed. And even then, you still work for your wife, right? Unless you're self-employed, your skills, your competencies, your talents, your trainings, your certifications, and your education are at the disposal of who? Your employer. Your boss. So using this everyday metaphor for work and employee and employer relationships, Paul argues that who or what we work for reveals the internal reality of our relationship with God. In essence, Paul is saying, tell me who you work for, and I'll tell you whether you've actually received God's grace or not. Tell me who you work for. Tell me who, who, who is the boss. So let me, just, let me just ask you the question. Who gets the benefit and the fruit of your mouth, your eyes, your hands, your ears, where your feet go? At whose disposal is your quick-wittedness, that sharp tongue that you have? At whose disposal is your logic and your ability to think things through? At whose disposal is your willpower and drive, your devotion, and that I'm not going to stop till I get it kind of attitude? Who, who gets all that? Who receives the benefit of all that? Who holds the reins of your skills, your desires, your choices, and your actions? Is it sin or Christ? Now, whichever master or boss you obey is your master. Do you understand that? Whoever you obey, that's your master. Now, the question of who or what we work for is not important. It is not unimportant. The question of who or what we work for is extremely important. One master drives his workers to death. The other master, who we can call boss obedience, rewards his workers with righteousness. So just to kind of follow along with this, Paul's saying that grace has resulted in a change of employment. You have new boss. You have a new boss. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 
and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You see, there's, a, there's an out of and into kind of element here. You have, by grace, been brought out of master sin's employment and into the employment of a new master, righteousness. It's not just, we as American Christians, we love the out of concept a lot, right? We're out of somebody else's authority, out of dark dominion, out of slavery to sin. But we forget that there's also an into element as well. You're brought out of something and into something else. Out of slavery to sin, into slavery of righteousness. Says it right there, black and white. Freedom from our deadly ex-boss becomes service to a better, more righteous boss. This change comes to us because we have submitted to the teaching, which is the gospel that he's proclaiming here. We have submitted to the teaching, and so we have a boss transfer in a sense. We have new master. Now, the best analogy I could think of from Scripture to show how this kind of freedom works is in the Exodus. The Israelites were brought out of what? Out of slavery. And into what? Into service of the Lord. You see, this is where we, 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 where we fundamentally fall short in our understanding of how this kind of grace works. Most people know that phrase. They, they imagine Charlton Heston, let my people go, right? I've always wondered, why is that the famous phrase? Let my people go. Because there's a whole other half of that sentence. Let my people go, that they may serve me. You see, the Hebrew word acknowledges that they're slaves to Pharaoh. They are, they abad, right? They serve Pharaoh. And now God is delivering them so that they may now, Abad, serve Yahweh. The problem in the book of Exodus that needs to be resolved is not the fact that the Israelites are slaves. That's not the problem. The problem is is that they're slaves to the wrong masters. They're slaves to Pharaoh. They're slaves to their own sins. They're slaves to golden calves and to Baals. When they need to be serving the Lord. So when God brings them out of Egypt, he brings them out of the service to Pharaoh to bring them into the service of Yahweh. They need to stop making bricks so that they can make the temple. They need to stop making bricks so they can now offer sacrifices and serve the Lord. There's a transition in their redemption in who they serve. It's the same principle that characterizes our freedom in Christ. We are delivered from the domain of darkness, from sin's dominion. And brought into what? Into the kingdom of his beloved son. Out of a tyrant to a king. Away from a dictator, a dominion maker, to the rightful throne. Do you hear that? American Christians have been all over the world. And and for some reason, other people in other countries do not struggle with this concept. So let me just be very clear. Autonomy was never a part of God's redemptive plan for you. Autonomy is not a part of God's redemptive plan for you. In fact, 
It was autonomy that got us into trouble in the first place. It was Adam and Eve wanting to autonomously be like God, to have all the powers of God discerning for themselves, judging what is good and evil for themselves. It was autonomy that got us in this mess in the first place. We need to be saved from autonomy and brought back into proper service of the Lord. That's the problem. So if you're thinking, Jesus set you free, now you're autonomous. That's not Christian freedom. Biblical freedom is the end of your autonomy and the beginning of Christ's reign in your life. I think we need to hear that and bask in that, don't we? You see, it stops all these, these dirty little excuses that we have about, well, I can say what I want now. I know I shouldn't have, I know I shouldn't have chewed that person out, but there's grace. So in other words, Jesus' death didn't pay for the sin just for the consequence of it. Jesus' death didn't end the dominion of sin. It just made it so that now you can live rich in the land of sin. God forbid we would ever think about that. As Paul says, heck no, that's not the way it works. You're not saved to live in a mansion in Egypt. You're delivered out of Egypt to live in a tent in the wilderness where you'll serve the Lord. Autonomy is not a part of the plan. And the more autonomous you are in the Christian life, the more worried you should be. Because the deeper in sin you are. The Christian life is about laying down your autonomy. Who cares what you think or want? What you want will give you death. What you think is fundamentally broken and flawed. Your opinions are shattered with selfishness. My friends, I hate to say it. Don't give yourself that much credit. You are not qualified to rule yourself. Every time we do, we die. We have a whole history of little ready-made tyrants of humans running around, and they're in graves to this day. As we're going to see, the wages of sin is death. Praise God he doesn't give us the autonomy that we want. Because autonomy will lead to death. Now, according to Paul, we were once slaves, and we were unable to obey God. Do you hear that? Like, like Because of sin... We could not please God. We cannot do what he asked. But Paul basked in that. But praise God, we can now obey him from the heart. From the cardia, right? The, the, the heart. Why would, he, why, would he, why would he want to bring in the heart into this, right? He's not used the heart much at this point. So why would he say, obey the Lord from the heart? Well, if you know your Old Testament, then you know that the problem throughout history, is that God's people had God's rules, they had God's law, they knew what they were supposed to do, they even had the voice of God himself coming from Mount Sinai telling them what to do, they had it written down, but they did not have the heart to obey. They didn't have it. That's the problem, that's a fundamental problem of our sinful existence. God washed the entire world clean in the days of Noah, 
And he took Noah, who's a fairly decent fellow in his family, and he put him back, he, he let him out of the ark in a brand new world. But guess what? He acknowledges that man's heart is evil from the days of his youth. He says it in the present tense, not past tense, not was evil, is evil. You get all this brand new, but you get the same wicked human heart. And guess what? The world breaks all over again. Israel gets a fresh start out of Egypt. They get brought into the promised land. This is their chance to live the life of blessing that God has for them and to flourish in the land. And so they live in the land with God's rules right there. And it says it's not hard for you. But in reality, because of the heart, it became impossible for them. We are incapable Because our hearts are far from God. Now, that brings us all the way to Ezekiel. It's almost like God allows the whole Old Testament narrative to develop. To just show us what happens without a new heart. You get a new king, the kingdom remains fallen. You get a new world, the, the world remains fallen. You get a new country, the country's soon fallen. It's almost like the entire Old Testament narrative is saying, all this new stuff, new priest, new temple, new everything, is worthless without a new heart. New creation doesn't begin with creation, it begins with new creatures. Which is why Ezekiel eleven nineteen and Ezekiel thirty six twenty six gives us the promise where God's going to give his people a new what? Heart. What's the point of the new heart? So that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. That's the point of the new heart. The fact that grace has transformed us so that we may now obey from the heart, as Paul says, and we want to obey, shows that God has kept his redemptive promise in Christ. Who has brought us those new hearts. You realize my friends. I just want, I want everybody to look at me for a second. You are in a position. No other human being has ever been in the history of redemption. Before Jesus. Hundreds of generations came and went. Without the ability. And without the heart. And without the desire to follow the Lord. And it was a miracle of miracles. That any of them could even do anything remotely like it. You, on the other hand, live in a world, in a reality, where you no longer have to be ruled by sin. David didn't have that reality. David lived in sin's dominion. He sought to obey the Lord. He was definitely one of the more righteous kings. But as David talks about his own heart in Psalm 51, it needed to be cleansed. It needed a, a, he needed a heart transfer, transplant. He needed a brand new heart too, just like Everybody else did. Noah didn't know it. Moses didn't know what this kind of life was, lo- was looking like. For us, we are the first people in all of redemption history who know what it's like to want and have the ability to obey God from the heart. Because the new heart has come in Christ. How amazing is that? A new heart so that we may now walk and keep And obey the commands of God. I don't have to give in to lustful temptations to cheat on my wife. You know, there was once upon a time in my life before I knew Christ that every little 
lustful wind that blew my way was enough to knock me over. Christ set me free. I still struggle with lust like any man does, right? I still have to be right on my guard. But you know what? There's something freeing about knowing I don't have to. I don't live perfect. I'm a flawed sinner like the rest of you. But the reality is, is that when I sin, it wasn't because I had to partake. It's because I chose to partake. And now I get to live in the freedom of knowing I don't have to drink the bitter cup. Because Christ did it for me and has now set me free from that stupid, wicked, tyrant sin. And I have a new boss now. I have a new master. And he's way better than the old. Now, not only has the gospel of Christ brought us a change in masters, we have new bosses, right? We have a new boss. It's also transformed our labor. Because we have a new master or a new boss, our work is fundamentally different. Now, how many of you, when you change bosses at your job, your work tends to change, doesn't it? You might be doing something similar to what you've done, but it's altogether new work for a new person, for a new company, for a new task. So here's the question. Now that you have been saved and given a new boss, what should you be busy doing? What is your new boss asking you to do? Paul's very simple answer is obey. He writes, For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now, a a person is responsible to whoever they work for. Whoever they work for. I'm responsible to the people at Grace Church. I'm not responsible to a church in Washington State or Washington, D.C., right? Because I don't work for them. But I'm responsible for the people here. You're responsible for your boss, right? And for your company, not for the company across the street. In most cases, commitment to one boss sets a person free from having to meet the expectations of other bosses. And when a person quits their job and they move to another job, they no longer have to do what their old boss says, right? I mean, for some of you, that's really good news because you hate your boss. And so you dream of the day that you can quit and tell him to shove it and you no longer have to do what he says. A lot of us love that idea, right? So when you quit, you're free. Our former commitment to the nasty boss, sin, prevented us to be able to meet the expectations of righteousness. We could not serve our righteous boss because we had the boss sin, right? We lived under the reign of a different master. As long as Israel was enslaved to Pharaoh, they were unable to serve Yahweh. So we had to bring them out so that he could bring them in. When sin was our master, our job, very simply, what we, what we do in sin is we put every faculty of our being to its service. Our mouth, our thoughts, our eyes, our hands, our sexuality are all submitted to fulfilling the wishes of our old boss. Can't help it. We just do it. Paul acknowledges that when sin was our master, we were not expected to do righteousness because that's not what sinners do. Sinners do not do righteous things. Sinners do what? 
sin. So you are free in regard to righteousness. So if, if the, the, the phrase, uh, I could do whatever I want, that most applied to your old life. Not now. I can do whatever I want. My, the, the idea of autonomy, that most applied to sin and your life under sin, not to your life in Christ. Now that we have been saved from sin, our new work is completely different. We have a new, uh, a new task, a new labor of turning all of our faculties, every member of our body, over to the service of God. Every bit of us, every inch of us belongs to him. Mouths that once cursed and verbally wounded others now pour out praises to God and encouragement to others. Hands that once plotted violence are now submitted to become instruments of healing and helping. Your trigger fingers that were ready to shoot have now become part of a hand that wants to bless. Your eyes that violated others and turned them into meat are now no longer doing that. Our sexuality that was once obsessed with self-gratification and what somebody else could do for me has now been transformed into an appropriate act of loving and giving in the context of a lifelong covenant. So what is the work of the Christian life? To daily submit our tongues, our eyes, our hands, our minds, our feet over to the service of our righteous king. Every word. Every thought. That doesn't sound like freedom now, does it? Is anybody else thinking like, well, (laughs) that sounds wearying. Well, according to scripture, a person claiming to be a Christian and yet remaining solidly in their sin is an anomaly. I mean, such a person is claiming, claiming to be loyal to a king while at the same time reserving their autonomy. That's a contradiction. That's not how the Christian life should be lived. First John talks about those who, who say they walk in light but actually walk in darkness, it comes out, it does, it, there's no political correctness to it, it just simply says such a person's a liar. You can't simultaneously walk in light and darkness. Now it's not to say that we're perfect, it's not to say that we never sin, but it is to say that we see sin in its proper light. It's a flagrant contradiction to who Christ has made us to be. You see, Christians that are acting as if sin is just normal, It is no longer normal for you. It's a flaming, flagrant inconsistency in your life. And it should be seen that way. You see, mature believers are not old believers. Mature believers are not believers who've been believers the longest. Mature believers are the ones that do not become more comfortable with their sin. They become more discomfortable, uncomfortable. With their sin. They're disgusted by sin more and more. But in addition to being disgusted at their own sin, their admiration for the grace of God goes up. I love seeing sweet believers that have this concept. They are probably the most humble people that I know. 
They're not busying themselves looking to point at other people's sins and downfalls and flaws and mistakes. They know that the biggest sinner in the room is they themselves. And that if God's grace is big, it's not big to cover up over everybody else's big sin. It's big to cover up their own big massive elephant in the room. Maturity as a Christian means, means that we grow in our disgust of sin. We grow in our admiration of grace. And we deepen a desire to obey the Lord. Deep, deep desires. And we joyfully, though admittedly painfully, take up our new work of submitting our whole lives to God. That's what it means to live free as a Christian. I can now make a war on my old slave master. I don't have to say it. You know, these people, I just have to say it. No, you don't. No, you don't. I can't help but thinking, yes, you can. Just makes me want to punch him. Well, don't, okay? You live in a new kingdom with a new king who has freed you from all of that. Now, let's finish off with this chapter. Tracking Paul's metaphor, grace has brought us a new master. He's brought us new work, a new labor, new task. And as we will see, He also brings us new wages, which we can't really call wages at all. They're not really wages, but that's the label that we have under them for now. Under the law and in slavery to sin, we are free in regard to righteousness. When we work for our old boss sin, we are free to talk to people as we please, free to sleep with whomever we desired, free to gossip, free to worship whomever, whatever we thought worthy, free to waste our time and whatever pursuits we deem fit and so on. For some, if you're being honest, it might seem even that you were freer before you were saved. Maybe you felt freer before you were saved. Now, as we begin to realize that the gospel lays claim on all of life, I think sometimes we begin dreaming about the good old days, right? We didn't have to worry about what was right or honorable. Or even worse, we, we grow a little jealous of all the other people who have freedoms that they can enjoy. It must admit, it must be nice to do all these other things like they, like they get to. My friends, in this, we become like the freed Israelites who, when it gets a little difficult to follow Jesus, we look back longingly at Egypt and we say, there we had melons. There we had meat. Can you think of the irony when they say that? Like, I would have lost my ever-loving mind if I was Moses. You've seen what God has done. You've seen these plagues that God poured out. You've seen him humble the most powerful man in all the earth, Pharaoh himself. You watched because what they were going through was actually declared to be Mara, bitter, right? Their Hebrew sons were murdered under the Egyptian system. They get out, they're out for a few weeks, they get a little hungry, and suddenly they're like, man, we miss the melons of Egypt. And Moses, I just can imagine, Moses must have been like, they beat you. You had no privacy. Your backs still have scars from the whip. What do you mean you miss the melons of Egypt? The dumb manna of the wilderness is better because it's free. My friends, we do that all the time. We look back on our old lives or we look at what other people are free to do because 
it seems like Christianity comes with all these rules and all these requirements and all these things. And yet we never stop to think about what it was actually like, what it was like to be woken up in the middle of the night to, to satisfy the craving that wouldn't let you sleep. What it was like to wake up the next day and to feel the guilt and the lash, the scar of what happened the night before. What it was like to feel every thought, every moment, every affection drawn to that one thing in the service of that sin. What it was like to almost have a marriage come crumbling down because of your arrogant mouth. What it was like to have children flee from you because of your anger problem. What it was like to have so, such big temptations that it wasn't a matter of if you'd give in, but when you give in. My friends, it wasn't better in Egypt. There are melons and meat there to be sure, but you were dying in that land. God has brought you out. Paul gives us this reminder that we need, that we are, we are indeed more free now than when we could do whatever we wanted. He asked about the old life and sin, and he says, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You have a new master. You're called to a new work. And you get a wage that can't qualify as a wage. A wage is what you deserve to get because of what you've done. A gift is what you get despite what you've done. Jesus doesn't pay us. He provides for us. So my friends, you, I don't know where you are. You may be someone who's not yet out of Egypt. You're still in slavery to sin. Or maybe you're someone who actually had the freedom call. You submitted your life to Christ initially, but now you still look back at the melons of Egypt and you wish you could go back. My friends, God's grace, properly understood, is not autonomy. God's freedom that he has given you is not autonomy. It's the ability to serve the Lord with everything you have. Think of that next time you open your mouth. Think of that when your eyes drift. Think of that when your mind wanders. Think of what your hands do. Not out of this selfish legalism of stop it. Not out of that, but out of a joyful knowledge that Christ has set you free from all that. Obey, not out of fear because of the the slavery of sin. Obey out of the joy of being set free in Christ. That's what you're called to do as Christians. Let's pray. Father God, I... Ask that many will be set free from slavery today, Lord, slavery from, their se- from themselves, slavery to their own autonomy. Father, whether they claim to be yours or not, I pray, Father, that we will examine our lives and ask the question, which boss do we obey? For those of us that are weary by our own sin, I pray that you help Gently draw us to repentance in you. And that we will enjoy the freedom. That we will not submit ourselves back. 
slavery of sin, but that we live in the freedom of serving you. You have made us priests and kings in your service. Now, Lord, let us live up to the righteous calling you've given us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.